Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Harrison. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're going down a rabbit hole and talking about Alice in Wonderland. So with Cinderella's massive financial success, the Walt Disney Company bounds into the 1950s with the money and confidence to finally complete two projects that it had been working on since the 1930s, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. So before I dive into the production history of Alice itself, Harrison is helping me out with the history section this week, and he's going to provide a little context on the original book and its author, Lewis Carroll. So Charles Ludwig Dodgson, who wrote under the pen name of Lewis Carroll, and who I will refer to as Carroll throughout this episode for the sake of simplicity, uh, was born in Darsbury, Cheshire, England on January 27th, 1832. He was the third of 11 children and grew up in a pretty isolated English countryside village. As such, he and his siblings ended up making their own fun a lot of the time, which allowed Carol's strange imagination to grow and flourish. Carol's nephew, writing in The Life and Letters of Lewis Carroll, published in 1898 after his death, describes Carol as a child, saying he, quote, was at this time very fond of, invent- of inventing games for the amusement of his brothers and sisters. He constructed a rude train out of a wheelbarrow, a barrel, and a small truck, which used to convey passengers from one station in the rectory garden to another. At each of these stations, there was a refreshment room, and the passengers had to purchase tickets from him before they could enjoy their ride. The boy was also a clever conjurer, and arrayed in a brown wig and a long white robe, used to cause no little wonder to his audience by his sleight of hand. With the assistance of various members of the family and the village carpenter, he made a troupe of marionettes and a small theater for them to act in. He wrote all the plays himself, the most popular being The Tragedy of King John, and he was very clever at manipulating the innumerable strings by which the movements of his puppets were regulated. One winter, when the snow lay thick upon the lawn, he traced upon it a maze of such hopeless intricacy as almost to put its famous rival at Hampton Court in the shade. Carroll also began writing at an early age and began composing poems in Latin around age 12. His parents encouraged his writing and he would often write things for the entertainment of his 10 siblings. Carroll left for rugby school at age 14, but had a rough time for those four years, suffering from bouts of illness and periodic bullying from other students due to his shyness. After graduating in 1850, he started at Oxford, and excelled in mathematics and the classics. He was appointed a lecturer of mathematics in 1854 and kept this position until 1881. While Carroll was at Oxford, he ended up becoming close friends with the children of the dean, Henry George Liddell. It has been theorized that Carroll got on better with children partly due to his being one of 11 children, but also due to a stutter that he never fully worked past. Carol's stutter would be worse depending on the situation, but he was able to speak more naturally and fluidly when dealing with children. Both of Liddell's children were very important to Carol, and one of them, named Alice, ended up being the driving force behind Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Carol would often tell Alice stories to entertain her, pulling some things from their life at Oxford and wholesale creating others. And eventually, Alice bemoaned the fact that she didn't have any of these stories in writing. So... Carol put them in writing for her. He kept adding new stories and revising and adding and revising and adding and so on and so on until eventually publishing Alice in Wonderland in 1865. 
Alice in Wonderland found immediate success and has only grown more popular as time has gone on. By the time Carol died in 1898, both Alice books were the most popular children's books in England and since then have only grown to become some of the most well-known children's stories of all time. Love it. So similar to Cinderella, Walt knew about the story of Alice in Wonderland years before he started his own animation studio and created adaptations of the original source material back when he was working at the Laughogram Studio in Kansas City. Alice's Wonderland was Walt's first Alice comedy that he made with the help of Ub Iwerks in the early 1920s. The basic premise was that Alice, a live-action girl, goes to a cartoon studio to see how cartoons are made. That night, she dreams of a cartoon world where she is welcomed by all the characters until some lions break out of a cage and chase her around, and then she wakes up. Sadly, Laughogram went bankrupt before Disney and Iwerks could release the 10-minute short. So then, Walt worked as a freelance photographer so that he could raise enough money to buy a ticket to Los Angeles. There, he made a deal with Margaret Winkler with the Winkler Productions to produce 57 Alice comedies. This was going to replace the Felix the Cat cartoon that Winkler Productions lost after a falling out with Pat Sullivan. The Alice comedies aired from 1923 to 1927 and featured four actresses as Alice, Virginia Davis, Margie Gay, Don O'Day, and Lois Hardwick. Each had a similar concept to Alice's Wonderland, where a live-action Alice interacted with an animated world. Obviously, Walt didn't stop with the Alice comedies. The story stuck with him, and in 1933, he decided that he was going to make a feature-length live-action film based off the book. However, Paramount released their own adaptation that year, so Walt puts his idea on hold and decides to move forward with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He did create a silly symphony called Mickey Through the Mirror in 1936. Basically, Mickey falls asleep reading Carol's sequel to Alice in Wonderland called Through the Looking Glass, and his spirit goes through a mirror. Hijinks ensue. He eats a peanut that makes him grow, uh, he dances with some playing cards, and he schmoozes the Queen of Hearts until the cards chase him and he wakes up. And we'll have a link to this short on our show notes page. Following the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt decides to pursue a feature-length Alice adaptation once again. This time, he wanted to make it all live-action. With each film, there's usually some hurdle Walt and his animators need to clear. With Snow White and Cinderella, it was budget issues. With all the wartime films, it was, well, the war. With Alice in Wonderland, it was trying to turn a story so focused on the nonsensical and illogical into a comprehensive script. Walt really struggled when it came to the beat-for-beat beat plot of the film, and he struggled to give Alice intention. The series of events don't make sense, so why does Alice feel compelled to continue exploring Wonderland? He hired one guy who wrote an 161-page analysis of the original text to help make sense of it. Uh, Walt held story meetings with great thinkers and intellectuals, uh, mostly for the publicity of it all, but many ended up leaving after the first meeting. Some people say making Alice was a pride thing for Walt. Because he focused a large part of his career on adapting classic stories into animated films, there was an expectation that he would do a feature-length Alice in Wonderland. But with all the difficulties they were having with the plot at this point, Walt begins to lose interest. By 1939, the Walt Disney Studios was developing the story, but Walt did not like what they had so far. He thought it was too dark and grotesque, and a lot of this version of the film drew inspiration from the illustrations in the book by John Tenniel. Even though Walt didn't like this style, a lot of the illustrations in the book did inspire shots in the final film, like a moment between Alice and the doorknob and Alice picking up the white rabbit in his garden when she's stuck in the house. Having read the book, these illustrations are are wild. Yes. They're they're insane. We'll 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 try we'll include some in the show notes. Okay. They're 
they're they're insane. Walt's discouragement, coupled with the difficulties the studio was facing because of the war and his anger towards his animators after the 1941 strike, caused him to put Alice in Wonderland on hold. When Walt went back to Alice after the war, his new conception of the film was inspired by the artwork of Mary Blair. Mary Blair was one of the artists who went on the trip to South America. Well, actually, her husband was invited, and she ended up convincing Walt to let her go as well. Animation historians said that during that trip, Mary's style changed into what people recognize her for today. She quickly became known for her use of bold graphics, bright colors, and warped, flattened perspective. After the South America trip, Mary did conception art for Cinderella, and after seeing her ideas for Alice in Wonderland, Walt changed his mind and decided to include animation in the film. In fact, the whole animation sequence in the film, where the different playing cards come out into the garden and they turn different colors as they march around, was all her idea. But the film still had a long way to go before getting to that point in production. The story developers still had a hard time finding Alice's motivation for continuing her journey through Wonderland. A 1945 screenplay by Cap Palmer had Dinah the Cat as Alice's motivation. In this, Alice is a live-action girl in a live-action world, and Wonderland is entirely animated. The film opens with her and Dinah playing, and then Dinah escapes and follows the white rabbit down the rabbit hole. Alice follows the animals and turns into a cartoon character as she's falling down the rabbit hole. Alice's motivation here is to rescue Dinah. She knows that she is asleep and needs to break a spell to wake up, so she goes to the Queen of Hearts for help. The Queen just blames her for eating stolen tarts, and Alice spends a night in jail. There's a trial, an escape, and Alice wakes up as her live-action self. She ends up finding the White Rabbit's watch in her apron pocket and questions whether it was really all a dream. The film fades out to the cat grinning, and oh yeah, uh, Dinah also becomes the Cheshire Cat at some point in this version of the film, it's unclear when. This version of the story had some alterations. There's another version where Dinah and the White Rabbit are in cahoots the whole time. A different version made the Wonderland adventure a nightmare brought on because Alice ate too many tarts. Another draft included Lewis Carroll as a live-action character. Carroll is at a garden party where he hears a young voice and slips away. He then meets Alice, and she says she wants to be grown up. She then falls asleep, and Carroll narrates the story. This version had a lot of growing up and kid-versus-adult themes, but all of it was ultimately scrapped. The studio ended up courting different actresses to play the live-action Alice, like Ginger Rogers and Luanna Patton. But by 1946, Walt decides to make the film completely animated and hires Catherine Belmont to voice Alice after seeing her in the 1948 film On an Island with You. So one interesting thing about Alice in Wonderland is the music. The first set of songs created for the film revolve around the theme of identity that we see in the film. There were 24 in total, and Walt scrapped them all. In 1949, he brought back the artists from Tin Pan Alley to write a new soundtrack. And at one point, there were as many as 40 songs. Out of those 40, only 14 made the final film. But the company repurposed the song Beyond a Laughing Sky for Peter Pan, and it became second star to the right. Similar to Cinderella's production process, the studio had live-action references for the animators. This time, Walt had the voice actors perform in the scenes. Ed Wynn, who voiced the Mad Hatter, is said to have basically ad-libbed the whole Tea Party scene during the live-action run. The studio felt his performance was better than when he recorded his lines afterwards, so they used the audio from the live-action run in the final film. The film was slated for a 1950 release date. But as I mentioned in the last episode, Walt pushed it back because Cinderella was moving further along production-wise. Walt also liked Cinderella better as a movie. So he pushed it back a year and began to drum up publicity for the film. As I mentioned before, he had big-name thinkers and writers sit in on story meetings during the film's development. And 
1950, Walt was beginning to dabble in live television thanks to the profits the company made from Cinderella. So that same year, he released a special called One Hour in Wonderland to preview the movie. The studio also created a 10-minute documentary about the production of the movie to help promote it. But all this publicity caused Walt to run into another issue. Apparently, an Alice in Wonderland movie from France was set to premiere in the U.S. on the same day. It said that the director was trying to confuse U.S. audiences so more people would see his film, and Walt was not having it. He tried everything to postpone the release of the French Alice in Wonderland, but to no avail. So, both films opened on the same day in 1951. The French Alice got abominable reviews, and Walt got, quote, some of the worst reviews ever for a Disney animated movie. With a $3 million budget, it only made $2.4 million in the box office. Joe Grant called it an overload in that the film had too much material. Lewis Carroll fans and big names in British film and British literature circles hated the Disney adaptation, saying Walt Americanized a great piece of British literature. The film ended up getting an Academy Award nomination for Best Score, but that did not help matters for Walt. He was so upset with the reception of the film that he vowed never to re-release it again because, quote, it was filled with weird characters. It had an appeal to the intellect without anything to appeal to the emotions, end quote. Walt also expressed a dislike for his main character, calling her prissy and passive. And he was upset because it didn't feel like a complete story. So similar to Fun and Fancy Free, Alice in Wonderland got banished to television land instead of getting a re-release. But then, 20 years later, something odd happened. In 1971, Alice in Wonderland became the top-renting 16mm film in every college town in the United States. College kids liked how it was colorful and odd and would basically play it at parties. I'll let you put two and two together. This was around the time Fantasia had a similar surge in interest, so Disney pulled the 16mm from rental stores and had a 1974 re-release of the film. It did fairly well, making $3.5 million at the box office, and it got more positive reviews. In fact, it was so successful that it got another re-release seven years later. Now, to double back to the book a little bit again, being published in 1865 puts Alice firmly in the Victorian period of literary history, which scholars consider to run from about 1837 to 1901 to coincide with the reign of Queen Victoria of England. Uh, Victorian literature exists as a reaction to the romantics that came before them. Romanticism primarily focuses on the subjective experience of the self within the natural world and really tried to emphasize an escape from the dawning industrial world and growing urban existence. So you get people like Percy Shelley going off to a mountain and losing their mind about how pretty this mountain is. <laughs> or Harrison just... losing his mind about trees. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually quite like going into the woods and just being like, oh man, the woods. Humans could, <laughs> I'm so small and insignificant. Humans could never. <laughs> <laughs> By contrast, Victorians largely focus on realism, logic, science, and philosophic inquiry in an attempt to make sense of the industrial world that they now have to exist in. They don't get the luxury that the romantics had of going, I don't want to deal with this, so I'm going to go into the woods. Victorians take the tack of, well, this is the world now. Let's learn how to deal with it and what makes it all go. Writers like Charles Darwin, Alfred Lord Tennyson, George Bernard Shaw, Charles Dickens, and the Bronte sisters all classify as Victorian. Lewis Carroll is definitely a Victorian, as his entire lifespan fits within the reign of Queen Victoria, and these subjects are most assuredly present in the Alice stories. However, 
Carol approaches them rather differently than someone like Dickens or Darwin did and creates a world where logic operates in an upside-down, nonsensical manner, creating a sense of childlike wonder and amusement in the adults reading his work. It is worth noting here that the Victorians are often credited with creating the current conception of childhood, most likely in an attempt to curb child labor in the face of rising industrialization and early capitalism. So Alice's publication could be viewed as an attempt to model the way a child views the world and thus illustrate how ill-suited that kind of outlook is for a factory floor. This is so interesting. Like, I'm not a I'm not a Victorian or a romanticist, but like I know enough to be able to be like, oh yeah, this is what it's doing. No, I like love it. I love it yeah. so much. The MA in literature really, really it's, pulling us through here. <laughs> listen, why do you think I wanted to read the book? <laughs> you like books. I I like books, and I need to use this degree somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So jumping off what Harrison said about Victorian themes, um, I want to double back to what I said about the response to Disney's movie from British literature experts. Their biggest issue was that Walt lost the true essence of the original story, according to them. In her article, Home for Tea Time, Fear of Imagination in Disney's Alice in Wonderland, Deborah Ross argues the Disney picture misses the mark because Walt makes Alice fear adventure, curiosity, and imagination, which is not what Carol was trying to do with his Alice. Carol wanted to support female imagination, thoughts, and desires, which Victorians condemned at this time. The main example Ross draws is the scene where Alice is lost in the Tugley Wood. Um, she argues this is the point in the film where we see the most surrealist animation. However, it's the point in the story where Alice begins to berate herself for wondering, imagining, adventuring, and expresses the desire to never have done it in the first place. There's a tension between the animation style we see on screen and the story itself. Ross says, quote, Therefore, Disney's Alice in Wonderland took the material's unequivocal support of female imagination and turned it into something both fascinating and yet painful to watch, and to watch children watch. End quote. She then goes on to say that girls pick up on this message when they watch it, so the more into the movie the girl gets, the more guilty she feels about watching it, which is how I felt as a child when watching it. I always felt like it was something that I shouldn't actually be watching and that I had, like stumbled upon like forbidden media entertainment <laughs> i was like and oh i always be like worried that someone would walk in and be like oh what you watching there alex even though it's very clearly just a disney film so yeah while interviewing tasman i told her about my experience watching alice in wonderland as a child which led into a broader discussion about the movie, the impact it had on us as children, and its darker tones and themes. So we've talked about Peter Pan, and you mentioned Alice in Wonderland a lot. When we were mm-hmm. like, you kind of drew those two as comparisons a lot, um, mm-hmm. and you say like, with Alice in Wonderland, you love the magic of it, and like the magic exists in everyday life. We just have to happen upon it almost. Um, anything else about that specific movie? I think the reason why those two are in my head so much is probably because they're the two that I had as VHSs as a kid. And so mm. they're just the ones that I watch so much. Yeah. So not necessarily because I love it more than if I'd watched another Disney film a lot as a kid, but purely because of the amount of times I watched it as opposed to anything else. Having said that, I take that back. Because I did have The Little Mermaid as a child as well. And I'm pretty sure I still watched Alice in Wonderland a lot more than The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I know I'm not a mermaid. 
Yeah. As much as that saddens me, I'm not going to go through what Ariel went through because I'm already a human. <laughs> Maybe it could be the other way around. Maybe I like I've read books where there are human girls that find out that they're mermaids. Mm-hmm. I always was way more attached and drawn to them than I was the little mermaid just because of the the flippity flop of it. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, I think Alice in Wonderland is because I wanted to be Alice. I wanted to run away into this into this world. And especially as a kid, I felt like um, my mum and dad were both incredibly, incredibly busy with work. So as a child, I didn't have much family time. Mm-hmm. And Alice also um, is sort of by herself. And in the, in the beginning of the film and the book, she has a nanny who's reading to her. And it's sort of like, well, I'm alone and I want friends. And so a magical rabbit and then um, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, that'd be quite nice, right? Mm-hmm. And the absurdity of the, what is it, the, the oysters bit? The I what? can't remember what the song is called. The what bit? The, the bit with the oysters. Oh, the walrus like, and the, the carpenter. Well, that's the one. Yep. That was terrifying. Yes. But also, like, I loved it and it was sadistic and it was amazing. There's something about it being dark that's also that's terrifying and intriguing, right? Yeah. It's like you it's know like you want to know more. Yes, exactly. And it's kind of like cuz I guess for me like I relate to that. Like from my, in my experience it's like that's the stuff I felt very sheltered from or like you know, but you know it exists and you're like, "Well, I want to understand it. Like how does Yes. How does this work? Let me mm-hmm. see it for myself, you know." Because as kids, our parents, if you have good parents, try mm-hmm. to protect you from all of this horribleness. Mm-hmm. And then horribleness? Yep, we're going with that. <laughs> and then we, in order to understand it, need to see it on the screen, right? Mm-hmm. So like one of my first experiences of uh, grief was H.J.K. Rowling, but um, Sirius dying in the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. That absolutely destroyed me. And I feel like that helped me form... Um, a relatively healthy way of dealing with grief in the long run. The the things that we watch as a kid and read as a kid are a good way for us to to learn things kind of cathartically secondhand without having to experience the trauma ourselves. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And the the oysters in Alice in Wonderland, they, they the the shells are made to look like little babies' bonnets, yeah, right? Yeah, they're literally babies that yeah. have been abducted. Yeah. But obviously terrifying. But then from a kid watching it, you relate to the the oyster. You relate to the baby that's been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. And then I can't remember in the end, do they escape or does he eat them all? He He eats eats them all, all, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a really sad ending. Oh, never mind. Oh, dear. But But they they get to experience the, the trauma that the oysters go through. Yeah. And still be alive at the end. And the difficult part that I think really makes it devastating is... They play it off, like, the ending is played off like a gag, right? So yeah. the whole point is that the walrus and the carpenter, they both want to eat the oysters. But while the carpenter's not looking, the walrus eats them all, right? And mm-hmm. so how does it end? The carpenter's, like, mad at him and chases him comically out of the the shop that they made in doubt, out down the beach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of it, you're like, LOL, they're running away. That's funny. And, so it and then you just cry at night by yourself when you think about the poor oysters. They didn't have to make them so cute. That's the thing. Like, right? they're adorable. 
that's so much about um so much of alice in wonderland is like that though Mm -hmm. it's sort of like the gags and the slapstickness of it is almost like trying to cover up how fucked up everything is our conversation about the underlying dark themes in alice in wonderland morphed into a discussion about the book's author lewis carroll tasman brought up some rather shocking information about his personal life I'm so interested in Lewis Carroll and the authors that came from Oxford University. And there are, I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head, but there was a whole bunch of them that were at Oxford around the same time and have revolutionized literature. It's mm-hmm. insane. Lewis Carroll wrote these incredibly detailed diaries that he wrote every single day. And of course, Alice is based off of, I think she's called Alice Little. Liddell or something a real girl and there was a family that he was close to and I think there were either two or three daughters and the years when he his diaries have all been found but the years that he worked that that he was like close with that family those diaries have been destroyed Mm. they've disappeared and I believe there was a photograph of one of the daughters who was like a young teen at the time. It was an inappropriate photograph mm. of the child that was found in his belongings. Mm-hmm. And then Alice in Wonderland is inspired by this family. And somehow, whatever happened, we don't know what it was, but the family and Lewis Carroll completely cut off contact after that. I'll yeah. find an article. There was a really, really incredible article about it um, that went in depth. But then it was, it was also... Um, quite good because obviously with um like me too and everything now we always always believe the person that is the victim and we've got to do that because that's the opposite of what has happened for the rest of time right Mm -hmm. but in this instance the because he's long dead the person was i'm not sure whether or not i agree with it but saying about how we don't know what happened it could have been something that was not as suspicious as it comes across. It might have just been like a, a, an argument he had with the family. Mm-hmm. But, but but then I'm like, the, why would you destroy all of the diaries? Mm-hmm. It was like a two-year space. And he destroyed them so that no one could find out what on earth was happening while he right. was with in the, close contact with these children. Yeah. So that, I feel like, kind of reflects why Alice in Wonderland is so creepy. Because mm-hmm. he was probably a pedophile right and then that gives a whole like i mean literally what we were just talking about the oysters Mm -hmm. the walrus steals and abducts these babies and then they never go home to their family because he's killed them this has really taken a dark turn wow I mean (laughs) every episode takes a dark turn you're fine like it's all good it is Disney. <laughs> right, right. No, like I said, like, we talked about sex trafficking in Pinocchio. Like, it just, yep. it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Upon further research, it's difficult to say for certain whether Carol was truly a pedophile. He did take photos of nude and semi-nude children that were later found in his personal belongings. And there are claims of an inappropriate relationship with Alice Liddell. But Jenny Wolfe, a London-based journalist and the author of The Mystery of Lewis Carroll, says that these photos of children were conventional by Victorian standards, even if nowadays they seem inappropriate. All in all, Wolfe concludes that the evidence is not substantial enough to support the allegations. Of course, we'll have more information on this in our show notes on the Talk Film Society website. I I have issues with 
a lot of this for other reasons as an adaptation. I, but this is a, a pretty big one. And like, I, I didn't quite pick up on this. It is very, con- like that Tuckley Wood scene is very condemning of like Alice it wanting to be there and like, and misses the mark on the fact that this is absolute, absolutely supposed to be her dream and like her subconscious imagination, which is like, not necessarily a welcoming place all the time, but not something you should hate yourself for experiencing. So I, I, and I think the fact that they don't address that it's a dream until the very end where she's like, Oh, gotta wake up, gotta wake up, gotta wake up. And it's just kind of brushed aside, um, reinforces that part of it and argue and detracts from everything overall. Um, yeah. Uh. So, because I, I read the book, but I read it a while ago. So, yeah. Is she's not asleep in the book then? No, she is asleep in the book. Okay, like it's okay. like she but like it's very clear that like this is something that she is envisioning. Uh whereas I wrote it down in in my notes for this. Um in this Alice's conscious imagination versus like her subconscious imagination, which is like what is creating Wonderland. Cuz like if we think about it as like dreams, your brain will come up with way more. Your brain can come up with wilder shit in your dreams than you can than some people can come up with their in their waking moments. Mm-hmm. Like when she's doing her little song at the beginning, talking to Dinah about like what her world would be and her nonsense world would be. It pales in comparison to even what is put to screen later on in the rest of the thing. Like the things that stick out the most are for stuck out the most for me were like. I could hear the babbling brook and it would make sense to me. Like I could understand it. And then Dinah wouldn't meow. She would say, yes, Miss Alice. Like, I'm sorry. This is the furthest you can get. This is the best you can think of. Just a cat that talks and you can understand the water. Well, and I think she also mentions the flower bit. Like all the flowers will have very extra special powers. They would sit and talk to me for hours. But she never, I think, gives like, you know, each each genus of flower like its own Uh personality and (laughs) even then and even then she's like the flowers would talk to me like okay the flowers kind of do that but the flowers also have their own like the flowers end up having their own agency and their own like ideas of stuff Mm -hmm. going forwards which like kind of brings me to um I, i read i read the book specifically for this because i haven't sat down and read the book before um i'd i'd read bits and pieces but i haven't read it all the way through uh this book is incredible this book is wild like i know i i call a lot of stuff wild and bonkers on this show yes you do um, but like but um the carol's on some next level shit with this book explain like because again it's been like years so yeah yeah so i think what what uh, what helps is let me see if I can find something. What helps is the fact that like okay, let me put it this way. The parts where the movie feels the weirdest are the parts where it is directly taking words from the book. The scenes that stick out the most from this movie are like the dinner, the tea party, the caterpillar scene, and the trial. Okay. 
all of which are pretty close approximations to what happens in the book, except the trial. But we'll talk about that because they fundamentally change how the trial goes Mm -hmm. because they've excised some characters from the book entirely. But the Caterpillar, um, the Caterpillar sequence in the book, the Caterpillar is more disinterested and just kind of stern than compared to in the movie where he's just malicious he's he's just mad and mean yeah and just really aggressive whereas in the book he's just like up a teacher trying to get an answer out of out of alice Mm -hmm. like who like it is it is more philosophical inquiry of who are you and they kind of go around in circles about that um let me, I'm just I'm just gonna read some from the book because yeah. the words the words are pretty much directly lifted into the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who are you? Said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly. I I hardly know, sir. Just at present, at least I know who I was when I got up this morning. But I think I must have changed several times since then. Mm. What do you mean by that? Said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will someday, you know, and then after it into a butterfly, I should think you will feel it a little queer, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. So it is this exchange of ideas and discussion of the self and what, like, growing and changing means. And it's like, like, this is, like, these are stories that Carol told this little girl in Oxford. Like, it's very clearly trying to help her grapple with, like, growing up and adolescence and like putting to putting herself together as a person. And there's this playfulness in the, in the text that the Disney version just kind of excises from a lot of the, a lot of the sequences, uh, as, aside from their kind of trademark physical slapstick humor, mm-hmm. which permeates the whole thing. Where, like, and they end up making the caterpillar sequence a lot more aggressive and a lot more tense and hostile than it is in the book. And I feel like they lose something. Like they end up taking a lot of the text uh, from the the script. Uh, they end up taking a lot of the dialogue from the book for that sequence, but completely misinterpret what they're going for. They do ultimately lose a lot of the essence of the book because one, I just don't think you can like. I fundamentally think. Um, Alice is in a way unfilmable because so much of it is about the banter and about the way the words flow and are structured. Um, So to kind of translate that forwards into a visual thing, you do have to kind of lean on what's come before in the Disney canon and what's come before in the Disney canon is a lot of the silly symphony stuff. And like, yes, there is some kind of surrealist animation in the, um, in the Tugly woods, but it's just, distinctly disney it feels so different from anything that in the film that comes before or after because i don't think it's particularly like the visuals there aren't particularly rooted in the alice in wonderland text whether or not it shows up in through the looking glass i cannot speak to because i didn't have time to read through the looking glass for this show but that scene in particular definitely feels like there's the most disney authorship being put in that changes the intent of the story 
mm. or and stories. It's almost as if kind of going off of that, they could have gone a little crazier with the animation, right? Yeah. Like something yeah, with the level of the Donald surreal, surreal reverie at the end of three caballeros might've would have suited this better, very well. Right. And it, even, and even like taking a half step backwards, we could like more like the card dance visuals that we see oh, later so on. Good. <laughs> it's so good. Such a good piece of anime. Mary Blair. Just, it's Ugh. so good. It's so like, there's like, there's sense to it, but yet there's not a lot of sense to it because the way that the colors and the shadows work when the cards move, like, mm-hmm. and, but like, you don't really care to figure out the logical right a, from A to point B. You're just, you just want to watch the spectacle. And I think that encapsulates Carol's theme better mm-hmm. than the surreal animation that we would see in like the quote surreal animation that we would see in the Tuglywood or like any other at any other point in the film. Right. And like the book puts, and there's, there's some of this in the, there's a good chunk of this in the movie too. Like the focus on like logic being inverted. And Alice talks, when Alice is talking to Dina about this, she's like, what is wouldn't and what wouldn't would be and what would be wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm make I'm messing up on that a little bit, but you get the gist. Um, and the, the sequence in the book, the sequence where she gets stuck in the rabbit's house, she like starts t- trying to ground herself and run through facts that she knows, like that she's been ingrained in in her teaching. And she's, um, she's like, I'm me, I'm I. Let me let me ground myself and make sure that like the things I know to be true are still true. And starts trying to um, recite stuff to herself and she's like running through math and she's like four times five is 12 four times six is 13 four times that wait no none of that makes sense okay let's do my let's do my geography london's the capital of paris paris is the capital of rome rome no that doesn't work either so she is like part of wonderland Mm -hmm. she has become entirely part of the world she has found herself in just by virtue of being there logic fundamentally does not work even for anybody even if you are a visitor to that space um the the recitation the caterpillar does when he's like do the recitation do the how do, uh, how doth the little yada yada and Crocodile, she starts yeah 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 and she does like half a line and he's like no here's how it really goes and he does his little two paragraph thing like that is taken from in the book she's doing that again when she's trying to ground herself in the house mm-hmm. but like she says um she crossed her hands on her laps as if she were saying lessons and began to repeat it, but her voice sounded hoarse and strange and the words did not come the same as they used to do. So she is intentionally trying to do it the way she knows, but the words just come out the way the caterpillar says them in the movie. So they are like, Alice is a passive observer in a lot of cases in the book because she is like, but like Wonderland's influence is still exerted on her because ultimately it is still her self-conscious. It is all a product of her imagination. Mm -hmm. So she is still a part of it. What the Disney movie fails to recognize is that she is as much a part of Wonderland as Wonderland is a part of her. Mm -hmm. And they remove her from it in a way. Like it helps get the audience into it and is like, Oh, look at all this weird stuff going on. Uh, And she's like the audience surrogate. But you could still do that and like put them off a little bit um, and have ha- have that logic be going, mm-hmm. which is why I think the um, 
the tea party scene actually is the best version of that because she is forced to participate physically by them. Mm-hmm. Like she is brought into that moment in a way that no one else brings her into that moment except for the trial, which we'll get to because I've got more things to say about the trial just in terms of what they change and the way it's structured. But like the energy of that tea party scene, if you wanted to do this book an accurate job, if you wanted to adapt this book accurately, the entire movie would need to feel like that tea party right. scene. Which like, and you no. kind of like when you're watching it, you're like, oh, they're just like, they're like, I was, when I was watching it, I was like, they're acting so like off the walls. And then I'm like, oh, it's because they're just constantly drinking black tea. They're just super caffeinated right now. <laughs> like, which like, is, is me like putting that mm-hmm. understanding on there. But that's just kind of what my brain thought of. But I think what's interesting about that and kind of before we go to the trial and getting yeah. on this point of like Alice needing to be part of the world as well as, you know, that co- coexistence there. I, one thing, I guess this is like either a question or a pushback, but like, yes, she is forced to participate. But do we see her actually affected by the logic of wonderland in a way that we see her psyche like reconfiguring no right so then which again i'm saying it's the closest we get i'm not saying it is a perfect adaptation Mm -hmm. um because she is kind of like buffeted around in the in the in the book version as well um and there is still that little bit of distance there because a lot of the time she is a passive observer but like the tea party scene is like the closest in she gets to it physically, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense because like they're literally picking her up, moving her around, uh-huh. you know, she's at the, she's literally sitting at the table with them. Right? right. And here's like, here's another issue I have. What is the logic for them to move down? There the isn't table? any, but does That's there need to true. be? That's not true. That's not true. There is in the book. Oh, there Wonderland, is. <laughs> Wonderland has its own internal logic. It is just not a logic that applies to the real world, which the movie kind of loses because in the book, they specify we've got this whole long table. It's set for all these places because we don't want to do dishes. So anytime we get a set dirty, we're just going to move down. And the, oh. the logical inconsistency there becomes, well, okay, what happens when you run out of table space? Mm-hmm. And they completely move on. They dodge the question. They don't worry about it. <laughs> so, like, there is some rationale there and there is some logic. Yeah. But it's logic that would appeal to a child, you know? Right. Like, a child would be like, I'm going to set this whole table and then I'm never going to have to do dishes because I'm always going to have a, a, a set of dishes ready to go. And like, next, move down, move down, move down, move down, move down, you know? But then you ask a child, well, what happens when you're when you run out? And they're like, I'm tired of this conversation. Why is a raven like a writing desk? <laughs> By the no, way, why is, is, why why is a raven like a writing desk? They Alex? both have legs. <sighs> no. <laughs> no, that's always how I've rationalized it ever since I've watched the movie as a kid, because that question kept me up to, up at night. I literally would lay in bed and be like, OK, so if anyone asks me, how is a raven like a writing desk? I need to have an answer. And it's because they both have legs. That's what I came up with. I mean, that is an answer, but um, <laughs> let me see what the book says. That's because the correct I think, answer. Well, see, that's the thing. And it's pretty early on in the tea party. Uh, the Hatter opened his eyes very wide hearing this, but all he said was, why is a raven like a writing desk? 
Come, we shall have some fun now, thought Alice. I'm glad they've begun asking riddles. I believe I can guess that, she added aloud. Do you mean that you think you can find out the answer to it, said the March Hare? Exactly so, said Alice. Then you should say what you mean, said, uh, the Mad Hatter went on. They have a whole like interlude about... Um, like saying what you mean, meaning what you say, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And how like the semantic difference between those matters and et cetera, et cetera. Because word games are fun with children. And then like two and a half pages later, like there's a bunch of nonsense shit in like two and a half pages in between the initial asking of the question and the answer. Uh, and the Hatter, uh, have you guessed the riddle yet? The Hatter said, turning to Alice again. No, I give up. Alice replied, what's the answer? I haven't the slightest idea, said the Hatter, nor I, said the March Hare. Like, it intentionally doesn't have an answer. Mm. What's the, what is, what's the inverse logic of riddles having sensible answers? Riddles having no sensible answer. answer. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently people badgered the hell out of, out of Carol so much that he came up with an answer to the question with like an asterisk next to it saying, there is no answer to this riddle. Y'all just won't leave me alone. What was his answer? Uh, I don't know. Mallory won't tell me. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll Google it. (laughs) Let's see. Why is a raven like a... I I feel like it is, like, it would be something along the lines if they both have legs. Because it can produce a few notes. Yeah, according to um, an article on uh, Gizmodo, he said that in the original book there was no answer to the end... To the end, to end the pain of ceaseless inquisitive fan letters, though he went ahead and thought up an adequate response that he put in the preface to later editions. He put it in the preface to later editions. He didn't even put it in the book. Incredible. Carol's answer to the to why a raven is like a writing desk because it can produce a few notes, though they are very flat, and it is never put with the wrong end in front. It's not funny. It's it's really good. It's 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 such a non-answer. He literally just came up with an answer just to get people to shut the hell up. I like legs better. <laughs> but that's the thing. Legs <laughs> make sense to our brain, right. which is why you like it better. Yeah. That's the that's the entire not point. Yes. Like you wouldn't you would literally like this is a world where you're celebrating the days that aren't your birthday. Which honestly, like why don't we just do that? Right. Wouldn't that make wouldn't that make life a lot more enjoyable in the long run? Yeah. We should move on to the tri- the yeah let's, the trial. Let's, discuss, you have a lot let's to discuss the let's discuss the adaptation issues on the trial. Okay, and then we'll and then we'll just like talk about the trial writ large, which will take us to the film discussion. Uh, so the trial, the the movie completely changes it, um, and why the trial is happening in the first place. So one, they completely excise the character of the Duchess. Mm-hmm. There's a Duchess character who's fucking around the book, and she's the worst. She's the dirt worst. She's absolutely annoying. She's, like, the most sycophantic person ever. She's just like, yes, dear, yes, dear. And is just trying to get Alice to shut the hell up constantly. And But it's just, like, she's also really ugly, which is a, a note that the book really wants to hit on. Because this book fucking hates royalty. It's incredible. Um, so the Duchess is the one on trial. Uh, facing execution because she ate some tarts. Okay, so this is where the tarts part comes in from, like, all the notes that I read everywhere. Like, yep. they were so fixated on Alice eating tarts, and I was like, what is it with tarts? This, yeah. this makes sense. Okay. Yeah, there's some tarts missing from the queen's table, and they're putting the duchess on trial, and Alice is watching it happen, and she gets called forth to present evidence, which is what leads to her growing and like getting angry, growing in anger, eventually getting fed up. Like you're nothing but a pack of cards, card chase and the movie. But like, again, it's that thing of like making Alice a passive observer to everything that gets thrust into it as opposed to 
placing as opposed to like placing Alice at the center and making her regret wanting to go on this adventure. Mm -hmm. And I think I think it's also interesting to note that the whole like the trial is not run by the queen. Mm. The trial is owned by the king. Okay. Like all like all of the irritants and behavioral problems that the queen has, the king also has in the book. She's the one demanding people's heads all the time, but the king is the one still like executing judgment and running things and running the court. Uh, and the queen pipes up like off with his head a couple of times. It's also worth noting that the movie uh, d- does not go to the effort that the book does of explaining that like no one actually loses their heads. The movie's just like willing to let you think, oh no, these people are getting their heads chopped off. It's fine. Don't worry about it. The book takes like a paragraph to be like, no, the guards take some of the cards, take the other cards who have just been condemned to execution, put them off in a room for a bit wait about five minutes, go report to the queen that like, yep, it's been handled and then let them out again. And she has no idea. Oh my God. Which is what happens in the 2009 sci-fi mini series adaptation. Right. Ah! So like, okay. Sorry. Off topic, but that's no, that's okay. Because like, it's, it's interesting. Like the adaptational changes that are made throughout different versions of like adaptations, Mm -hmm. like, the Alice license has gods of weird places. Like it has. extremely like yes. one could ar- one could argue that Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch is a ver- is a is an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Mm. It's not a good one, but one could make the argument. Mm-hmm. Um but like uh, when we were last talking about this before you lost everything, we were going back and forth about what the role of the monarchy is in the film. Right. And I think it's interesting now thinking about it, thinking about the conversation that no one's ever going to hear in context of having read the book and watched the movie again. And the fact that they condensed all of the royalty stuff into essentially just the queen of hearts. Yeah. And that got me thinking about like Renaissance aside, Disney really fucking likes making their villains women. Yeah. No, I'm looking, I'm thinking about it now. So we've well, like, apart from Robin Hood, but like coming up, up until Dalmatians, where, we are, where we are now. So thinking Beauty. back. Oh, thinking back. Yeah. Every, well, hmm. Other than Snow Pinocchio. White. Other than Pinocchio. Fan, I think not most Fantasia. Of them, Fantasia doesn't necessarily have a villain. Okay. And then we have Dumbo, which would be, no, cause that's. But think my- about, but think about the other elephants. Oh, I was thinking of Pinocchio when I said Dumbo. Yes, the mean lady elephants. And Bambi then doesn't. Bambi. Bambi has humans in general, so that doesn't count. So that's two out of five. <laughs> two out of five, and then Alice is like the epitome of angry females, and then Cinderella is Lady Tremaine. Yeah. And then and we then don't count the package. We don't. We don't count. There's too many the, to. Yeah. Say that and, there's a villain. Okay. Okay. It's it, it's it's this really interesting through line of women in power being generally shitty and terrible. I mean, you can and, even just think about the flowers in Alice in Wonderland and how petty yeah. they, like they gave me major elephants. Like you know how like the elephants were being mm-hmm. so specious, <laughs> and like the yeah. flowers were doing the same thing. It's kind of like they were trying to categorize her. Yeah, they were trying to. They were they were basically go. They were basically doing phrenology on Alice. Mm-hmm. And but then when they were like, "Oh, you're not a flower. You're a weed." Like you know, and they like a chase her out, and I'm like, and they and they they're all like, 
look at her stems, look at her petals, yada, yada. And then the one bud who's like, I think she's pretty, gets shut up immediately. Mm-hmm. Which, like, that that bud's trying his best. It's so cute. <laughs> but no, I think you bring up a good point um, that, you know, if the woman is not the mom or the main character, then and doesn't fit into those roles, it's so easy to just for them to just siphon them off and create these caricatures of women, which I think at the end of the day, you can bring back partially to the fact that like, think about who is making these movies and probably what their understanding of women in power is, which is again in the forties and in the thirties, you know, like (laughs) you just get, I don't know. You just get a bunch of men together. Like you hear what, you know, they just probably bitch about met women being women and who have too much power being mean. Like, Mm -hmm. so yeah, no, I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, and like we were like it's it's the the text is very clear. It's not like necessarily against women because like all of the critis- the criticisms against la- the landed elite and royalty and anybody with a title is spread across the the hierarchy. It's the duchess gets ragged on, the queen gets ragged on, and the king gets ragged on. Mm-hmm. It is it to me it reads more focused on we need to shit on the monarchy mm. and the the class structure of England because they are the ones pushing for the industrialization and the that is going to eventually like take over west like the world you know mm-hmm. so like it's it's getting ahead of that and is like hey don't don't mistreat people be mm-hmm. sensible uh and like your lo- like your logic and your like ineffectual leader your your lack of logic in ineffectual leaders will eventually like prove detrimental to whatever you're trying to do. Even if that's like just outright tyranny, because no one's going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. Like the queen can't get anyone beheaded because the soldiers are just like, now we'll put you in a room and just leave you for a couple of minutes. And then when she asks, we'll let you go. And she won't even have any idea. Mm -hmm. It is like, I like, I hate to, I hate to compare things to the Simpsons, but there's like, (laughs) There's an episode of The Simpsons where, like, a guy, like Frank Grimes applies to be, like, gets hired as uh, Mr. Burns' executive vice president, and he shows up to work for the first day, and he's like, who are you? I don't remember this. I don't remember this decision being made. Go go work in the nuclear factory. And then he sees a, a pretty dog, and he's like, bring me that dog. I will make him my executive vice president. And then the dog is executive vice president for the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. Like it's just this stuff popping up in his head and it's completely fleeting and it's gone in 60 seconds. Right. So like in it, it, the book reads more as a dig at the ineffectual leadership of the landed elite mm-hmm. than the movie does, which is just a dig at irrational women yeah. who happen to be in power. Right. And a dig at the men around them who can't keep them in check because that king is made super effeminate. Mm-hmm. Like he's super small. He's like, Oh my, 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 my dear, my dear, please. And he's like whiny and he's like super high pitched voice. He's made to be as effeminate as possible. Mm-hmm. Because like if the queen act- had a husband, like she did in the book, obviously that man would keep her in check. Right. You know, it's just that logical assumption that goes with it. And right, only a also- woman who isn't held mm-hmm. back by a man could, you know be that 
but irrational. also I, I I wanna I wanna emphasize the king does nothing to keep the queen in check in the book. She is still just let her let to go play croquet and scream off with their head every couple of minutes. Like the book is like, yeah, every five minutes she tells somebody to get their head chopped off and the crowd cheers and then they just ignore it and go about their day. Mm-hmm. And she is none the wiser. So she's left to go left to her own devices. It's not it's not the king's job to keep her in check. It's the power structure writ large is ineffectual at doing what it's doing. Mm-hmm. So Okay. It's Disney, which is like <laughs> women in power. Am I right? Gosh, those women. Yeah. It also doesn't help that uh, the Queen of Hearts is drawn fairly masculinely in this. So. Yeah. Like she doesn't have eyelashes, really. Only like when she bats mm-hmm. them. But then they're gone. Doesn't wear makeup for the most part. Is Kind of gives off like female Gaston vibes a little bit just in like look yeah, and structure. Very stocky. Yeah. Big yeah. and stocky. Yeah. Yeah. And then just isn't like kind of like in the stepsisters like we talked about with Cinderella mm-hmm. just awkward and not graceful loud you know kind of just falling into uh-huh. that similar too much category that yeah. you know b- made the stepsisters undesirable so for the most part harrison thought that disney did a fair job adapting alice in wonderland the book into a film this topic came up in our interview with emily when we asked her about her favorite disney movies growing up so when i was growing up i had very adult taste in films i guess like my favorite movie to this day and i started watching this when i was a toddler is planet of the apes like not normal stuff for little kids to watch however um there were there was like a good solid chunk of disney movies that i would watch repeatedly with my dad and so to me those movies are a reflection of my relationship with my dad so like i am very deeply connected to the ones that I have spent time watching, if would, that makes sense. Would you mind listing some of those? The Jungle Book, um, Fox and the Hound, um, Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, man, I don't know what that teaches you, but I love that book and the movie. I that like That's the best portrayal of the story from Lewis Carroll that I've come across yet. Why? I think it captures the essence of it in the best way. Not, it's not perfect by any means. Like, obviously, the Disney Alice in Wonderland was produced for a younger audience. And I think the book, the story was, I don't know. I couldn't tell you who that was produced for <laughs> age-wise. But um, I think a lot of the other renditions of it that I've seen are just very, they just miss the mark. And I feel like that one gets the closest to it. And I, the, the story was my favorite growing up. I loved reading that book. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know anything. Like, I just thought it was crazy and kooky and fun. And I think that the watching the animated Disney version kind of brought a lot of it to life for me. All right, that's all I've got. That's all I've got in terms of adaptational change for now. I'll probably remember stuff when we get to it. Like yeah. I know I haven't talked about the caucus race. I haven't talked about um, the doorknob. I haven't talked about the initial th- 
pillar, but uh, the initial fall. What I will say about that initial fall, though, um, and this will take us nicely into discussion of the movie writ large. Uh, holy shit, this environment design is so good. So are you talking about? Oh, the you mean it, when, in, in environmental design? Yeah, just uh, for the Wonderlands movie? and yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Like oh, it's the, good. the way the way they paint like the the English countryside, and then the way they they just make everything feel just a bit off mm-hmm. in Wonderland. Like the the hallway she's running through after the rabbit when she falls down how it's like the angles are all weird the whole like she is bigger than the hallway but still manages to fit even before she takes the 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 drink me stuff and then just like the the sit the like five doors well okay going off then on what you you're saying about you know just the the design of the movie in general yes in wonderland everything's i was even noticing like in the wood when she meets the tweedles like all the trees are kind of are angular and are at an angle like, they kind of just shoot up, you know, like, a little, like, off. Like, they don't look like trees. They're just kind of, like, Ugh. um, But it's interesting just thinking, because, like, when the movie opens, you see this beautiful English countryside, and immediately my brain is like, ah, Disney formalism. Like, you know, you get this multi-plane shot, and there's grass, and then there's, like, butterflies. You know, it's very, um, it's just very standard Disney. Like, it's what you would see in... Snow White or Bambi or Pinocchio, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's interesting just thinking about the different styles that we see when she is in Wonderland because I think it oscillates between Silly Symphony, kind of what the base, more like I don't want to call it base because none of it's the level of the package films that we've seen, <laughs> but maybe like upscale Dumbo, we could call it like a little okay. like not quite Dumbo, but not quite formalism, right? But it's right. But better than Silly Symphony, but it's just not, it's not as refined. It's not going for hyper-realist. It's not uh going for, let's try to recreate this, 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 this um, forest to make it look as forest-like as possible, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So you have, like, because when I think of, like, the caucus race, that specific scene, that feels just very upscale Dumbo. But then, like, again, we go into the woods and the scenery is all angular and you kind of like you feel a little off at the moment you're kind of like ooh, like now there's a little bit of like style to this like mary blair mm-hmm. ooh, hi and so it and then again we kind of get that like with the rabbit's house with the white rabbit's house yeah i feel like that's pretty standard but then again when we get to the cards and they're coming out that's very stylized i guess is a better way to put it mm-hmm. and then you get like your fever dream scenes <laughs> which like has essence of Fantasia I feel like I think that whole end chase scene the way that she kind of like goes back and through all the different places where she's visited in those transitions um you know she falls into the teacup and then she's in the ocean that brought her to the caucus race but it's brown like the tea right like those transitions they remind me a lot more of like the pink elephants on parade um the snow uh not snow white the cinderella who um when she's cleaning and just like the whole and um watercolors with the brazil so like the more fantasia-y stylized stuff so you kind of just have like a big hodgepodge mesh of like (laughs) you know a whole bunch of stuff just kind of thrown into this movie which i think works right like i think it does a good job to set up 
Wonderland versus real world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like recognizing that. Um, And also, like, it's just, I think it just makes it all fun. I'm like, oh, like, you know, it's not like with um, Three Caballeros where the drastic changes made me angry. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think the context of the film and I think the story of the film and knowing the the source material almost invites that sort of oscillation and that jumping back and forth and allows you to just kind of watch it and not make... And it doesn't really like make you want to figure out the logical string of a to b to c you just kind of right. are like you know right. i'm just gonna sit back and like this is just how it is we're just gonna enjoy mm-hmm. it right now i hate to do this and i'm sorry i'm sorry to all of our listeners oh no i'm i'm gonna and i'm gonna make the comparison oh um, boy the way it the way alice kind of flows at least in in certain parts the way it flows from one sequence to the other and just kind of like without much of a connecting thread but just like the barest thread possible to move from scene to scene uh and make it fit in a way feels like certain parts of what david lynch does um Mm. because lynch operates entirely on dream logic Mm. in a lot of his stuff like the the thing like i'm not talking about tone i'm not talking about visual style i'm not talking about like structure generally i'm talking mostly about the way it transitions from one scene to another specifically the 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 part at the beginning where she like she falls down the hole she's at the door she cries she goes through and is at the caucus race and then we're and then into tweedledee and tweedledum Mm -hmm. and then there's a hard cut yeah that whole section just the way it flows like that and it's just like what the hell is happening i'm just on this ride Mm -hmm. feels to me like the um alex you won't understand this but maybe some maybe a listener will um feels like the in radiator dream sequence at the end of Eraserhead, uh, which goes from our main guy looking at a radiator into a theater, which goes into an alley, which goes into a factory, and it just flows with the barest connecting thread, but it works somehow. Mm-hmm. Again, I am not I am not comparing them in terms of quality, just in terms of transition flow. So you're saying like transition like from scene to scene and like alice moving from point a to point b correct it's okay yeah okay. it's ex- it it op- it feels like a dream like the way yes. a dream can just hop from point from beat to beat to beat to beat mm-hmm. and feel like yeah no this makes sense without any actual sensical connection between the two made me think of how lynch can do that at certain points and i think that's very true because i think that when you look at because what I noticed when I was very impressed with is the way that they were able to make each put each sequence in an order that felt correct. Mm-hmm. Um, like the way that you go from the flowers to mm-hmm. the the screaming bird and then down to caterpillar. That's really where this theme of identity starts to come through because the flowers, as we talked about before, they're talking about like, you know, they're trying to categorize her, right? They're trying to be like, okay, like, what are you? Like, are you a lily? Are you a daisy? Like, you know, trying to figure out who Mm -hmm. is Alice, right? And then it flows into the scene where she, um, she goes to Caterpillar next. Yes, she goes to Caterpillar next. 
And then that's a little more of an aggressive, like, who are you? You know, we kind of get like this, the, the pettiness of the flowers to the aggressiveness of the caterpillar, like confronting her with this idea. And then when she starts eating the mushrooms and she grows up and then the bird comes up, the bird's like, you're a serpent. You're a serpent. Serpent, serpent. And like Alice is like, no, I'm a girl, like trying to assert who like, you know, no, this is what I am. And I know I'm this. But then like, again, like even more of like a berating of like, you know, no, this is an identity. This is your identity, right? And then, you know, she licks the mushroom and she goes back down. But I liked how, you know, I felt that buildup worked well and it was all connected just with that one kind of idea of like, who is Alice mm-hmm. at, writ large? And then I liked kind of how in the back half, we get this steady growing tension. I don't want to call it tension, but like this steady... Um, basically it gets like crazy and crazier because we go and we meet the cat and Mr. Sterling Holloway acting oh, like the so demonic good. Winnie the it's Pooh so that good. we didn't know we needed. <laughs> he's like, an absolute demon and I love it. So he's a little, he's a little crazy, you know, and it's kind of like that same kid logic, you know, Alice is asking him all these questions and he's like, did you know you could, can you stand on your head? You know, while he's standing on but his like, head. But like literally, literally standing on his head. because this is what I love about the book. It's shit like that. It is. Can you stand on your head while literally putting taking his head off, putting it on the ground and standing on top of it with his torso upright? Mm-hmm. It is shit like that for one hundred and thirty pages. And it whips. It's so good. And the movie doesn't know how to handle that so it dispenses it except in points where you can like really visualize that conversation which is why you have the cat like the caterpillar scene would not work if they were just sitting there talking so he they have to add like the physical comedy of his ass falling off the leaf Mm -hmm. and like trying to get back on or him blowing the letters into her face which i really do like but it's telling that they have to supplement the source material with other stuff that doesn't quite undercut the material. And I know I talk about like their slapstick undercutting the tone of a lot of their stuff, right. but it comes, they are riding that line here, which is improvement from where they've been. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, and I think like at the end of the day, you really just have to think about translation and adaptation between medium mediums, exactly. right? Because you, or media, I should say, because you have to like, that's what makes it so difficult because like you're, you've been saying this works as a book really, really well. But I, the point that I think you've been getting at and that I think like, you know, makes sense right. is like, how do you take these elements and these themes that are expressed through words and the mm-hmm. written language, how do you get that to be compelling in a visual medium? Correct. As in film. Correct. And it sounds like what I'm hearing from you is like they try to get there, but they kind of missed the mark. Correct? Yes. Because as as I did say earlier on, I do ultimately think the book is as is the book is unfilmable and, and you won't be able to capture a lot of the essence in that visual medium because like the word play is so crucial to it. And the way Carol writes is such an intrinsic part of what makes it work mm-hmm. that any adaptation is inherently going to be lesser. That is not me saying the, the adaptation is always lesser. 
But in this particular case, I think it is that is what happened. Does that mean I don't like this movie? No, I love this movie. This movie's great. This movie's a lot of fun, but it has some problems stemming from the fact that you it is extremely difficult to faithfully adapt such a complicated and twisty and fundamentally fundamentally inverted logic that is found in this book right and i think like they obviously did have a lot of issues with that right like that's what we we were talking about earlier is just like you know when you don't have the wordplay to rely on how do you like you know like what how do you how do you make a how do you make a plot out of something that (laughs) like is already so inverted in logic like how do you create motivation and like Mm -hmm. and you know and it makes sense like let's think about the movies disney has made everything is based on like this sort of in like this motivation to be something i don't want to say everything but that's like a big theme in a lot of these films right snow white wants to well we don't really know what she wants to be let's say you know she's just kind of cleaning and she wants to not be murdered Okay, like that's good. That's a, she, that's a pretty safe assumption. That's good, she but wants you know, to not be murdered. She has that motivation. Pinocchio wants to be a boy. Fantasia's its own thing. Dumbo wants his mom back. Bambi wants to learn how to be a deer. <laughs> like, like I described that movie as deer learns how to deer. Yes, like that Bambi just wants deer to learn be, how to deer. deer. Bambi learns how to be a deer, but he wants. You know, I wouldn't say he necessarily has that motivation to be a deer. We're just more so gazing into his life. So maybe Bambi just kind of doesn't fall into this, right? Mm-hmm. Jumping over all the package films, Cinderella wants to leave her abusive situation, but then we have Alice, right? And, like, even if we do go to the package films, like, Pablo the Penguin wants to leave Antarctica. You know, the Gauchito wants to earn money. You know, like, win a you race. have... Win a race. Yeah. Like, you have all of these films that are, like, you, it's, it is... And it is the it is the core of the American ideal, right? It is to, like, have a dream and to make something of yourself to make that happen, right? That's just... It's so American. So mm-hmm. then you get something like Alice... <laughs> And they're like, and I think like when when you say like when we see all these like, you know, all these um, critics who are like, you know, you Americanized Alice in Wonderland. I think it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, because Disney is trying to and we see this in his production. He wants to he wants to give her that motivation that he has been giving all of his care, his protagonists so far. Right. But I don't think that that necessarily work. That doesn't work in the in, when you have a story like Alice. It's not. That's not and the I, point. You know. That's not. I, the, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I I like where you're going with this, but I think we need to differentiate between external motivation and internal motivation because Alice does have motivation. That motivation is curiosity. Yes. It's simple as that. She's like, "What the hell is all this?" In the same like in the way that like. If you have when if you if you have dreams that you still remember, the prime motivation for you going through that stuff is usually what's going on. Like it, it at least in my personal experience, when I'm remembering dreams, the thing that's like getting me through the dream is mm-hmm. like what's going on, what is happening, what's this, what what is happening, like pulling me through that in a way. Mm-hmm. So like and also just like children ask questions. Children's main motivation for a lot of things is what happens if I do this. So Alice is just kind of like, she's being a child. She's just exploring. You don't need much more motivation than that. She's nine. Yes. 
Yes. But that's not the yeah. motivation that we have been seeing. Correct. I think is the point that I'm getting across is like right. Disney wants, you know, I could just see him. He just wants her to like make something of herself. Right. <laughs> but Which like that's like, just not what she is. And that's not what the book's about. No, the book is about like entertaining yourself as a child and just like coming up with weird dreamscapes that based on what you already know. So, like, of course Walt was going to struggle with it because Walt doesn't, like, Walt had an imagination, but it is fundamentally rooted in, like, an external want mm-hmm. a lot of the t- case. Yeah. Which, like, there's that capitalism for you. Right. And I think it makes sense, um, you know, just given who he is. Like, mm-hmm. of course he's going to want to do that. But in the end, yeah. it just kind of, like, goes to what you're saying and... You know, when it comes to adaptation, can make it a lo- makes it more sticky. Um, yeah. Going back to what I was saying about the cat. Yeah. <laughs> like Twenty minutes yeah. ago. Demon Sterling Holloway. Demon Sterling Holloway. So, like, before this, everyone's operates under this kind of illogical logic, right? But we don't really see someone who's completely like has a screw loose. <laughs> I would argue. Yeah. You know, everyone's a bit off, but you don't really see a character and you're like, ah, are you okay? Right. Or like, Mm. you're just, you know, you're, you know, unhinged, I guess is one way to put it. So, but we go from him and then that leads us into the tea party scene. Right. Which obviously like we have even more of what the cat was, you know, the Cheshire cat is a lot of like Alice asking questions and him not answering them and then him asking other questions and responds. And then, you know, that that's just amplified in the tea party scene. And then, you know, she kind of goes, gets lost in the wood and everything, but all that is built up to then the queen and her yeah. like that. And then the, the complete lack of logic in the trial, you know, like uh-huh. nothing. What was it? Nothing, whatever, nothing, whatever. That's, that's very, very important. important. <laughs> like, you know, it's, that's still my favorite line because it's so just, good. it's so chaotic and I love it. That's like just the, the one, two, three, four mm-hmm. of, of all of that is so good. And like, just the way she's in her, the way she's questioning specifically the March hair and the dormouse. They're just so good. The Mad Hatter's testimony. I could take or leave. Honestly, it's okay. Um, it's not the best. It's okay. But the dormouse is going twinkle, twinkle, little bat. How I wonder where you're at. And the cards being like, shh, don't wake him up. Uh, and her just going, that's the most important evidence we've heard so far. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> twinkle, 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 twinkle. No, and it, it's just, and so, yes, going back to what I was saying, like, how she gets from point A to point B doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is that dream logic, you know, that, that little, like, thread of, yeah, you know, things beginning not to make sense and then just getting increasingly, like, you know, more frustrated with it as we see with, like, how she gets frustrated with those specific characters, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then... Yeah, so anyways, point being, the pacing works in this, and I think so well. the pacing's great. You're never on a scene for too long, and then the way that we get from point A to point B works, um, because time, Except- like, really just doesn't matter. Like, honestly, the yeah. only part that was super jarring for me, and it really was, that was just the first time I watched it, and not necessarily this time, was when she first leaves the caterpillar, 
Yeah. She leaves and then immediately the caterpillar is like, you girl, come back. And then we take, you know, five or six frames to see her like, you know, crawling through the leaves and stuff to get back. And like the first time I watched that, I was like, oh gosh, she really made headway. Like I didn't, you wouldn't have guessed that, you know, the first, you know, like just from when she leaves to when the caterpillar calls her back. But I think it just goes to show that like time and spatial everything just doesn't matter you know you can't walk away from this film and have a clear map of what wonderland looks like but you're not supposed to no and that's okay it is and i don't like usually i feel compelled to like make a mental map because that's just kind of the person i am but when i'm watching this i don't feel that i don't want to i don't need to it's not Mm -hmm. necessary yeah that's good it's so no, good. It's 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 very good. This movie's very cool, and it like taken taken outside of the adaptational context that I have to view everything in because I'm broken inside. <laughs> um, this movie's great, uh, and like we we talked about, um, we mentioned Sterling Holloway's performance. I don't think we can get out of this without mentioning Catherine Beaumont, Queen. She no, not queen. That's Wait, no. someone else. She's Alice, not the queen. She is a queen. We love Catherine. No, that's Beaumont. what I meant to say. I know. I know. I was messing what? with oh, you because Harrison. There is a <laughs> I am not in the mental state for that today. That's okay. I'm sorry. Uh... Anyway, um, so fun, fun factoid that some people might already know, um, but I'm pretty sure you don't. Um, do you know what other roles? Yeah, she's Wendy she's, and Peter Pan. I mean, other than that. So here's the cool thing about Catherine Beaumont. Catherine Beaumont has voiced Alice again. Oh. <laughs> I know where this a, is going because you've mentioned she, it before. She she voices Alice in Kingdom Hearts, a game that came out in 2002. And she sounds identical to how she sounds in this. It's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I thought we'd get more episodes away without making another Kingdom Hearts reference, but here we are. You can't are. escape me. You can't escape me. But it's worth looking up her performance in um in Kingdom Hearts because it is it is pitch perfect. I'll see if I can find I'll see if I can find something for the show notes because Please like do. it's now I'm curious. It is absolutely phenomenal how she like hasn't lost a step and like they bring her back for like another incidental character in the kingdom Hearts stuff which is like an original character which i don't want to mention um but like the fact that she can go like 40 some odd years without doing the character come back and just nail it perfectly more like 50 years this was alice was 51 Okay, yeah, 50 years. I know last week we talked a lot about perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say I did not retain a single word of what her tutor was saying until she mentioned the crown because that's the moment when Alice puts the crown on Dinah. (laughs) And I was like, what about a crown? Who are we talking about? Like, So again, just I don't know if that's going to make it, but I just thought that was fun. Oh, I... I, (laughs) I'm with you, but her t- uh, her tutor, who is her big sister, was going through all of it, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, okay, okay, where in history are we? Where, where, what, what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? And then she says, William the Conqueror. I'm like, aha! I know exactly where we are. I know what we're talking about. Aha! 
Britannia. So, like, kind of going back to what I mentioned before about how, like, I watched this as a kid, right? Yeah. Um. This, like, okay, so there are bits of this movie that just really stressed me out as a kid. And it, no, like, one, no kidding. And, yeah. like, I was reminded of that watching it last night. So that whole doorknob scene where she can't get to be the right size and then, like, forgets the key and, like, is just trying to get out and then just cries, like, stressed me out so much as a kid. And I swear, I still have panic dreams like that sometimes. And that is literally, like, just the tenet of my life. So watching that was really difficult. Also, I wanted to bring something else up um, just, again, with, like, childhood things that I noticed. So I'm very confused by the Tweedles character. Because when I was a kid, for some reason, they always just gave me this really menacing vibe, right? But then mm-hmm. nothing really happened that like made them menacing. And I was kind of like, why did I feel that way? And I think what it is is like they are very manipulative. And they know the power that they have over other people. So, like, Alice is trying to leave for the first time. And they know that in order to get her to stay, they just need to stroke her curiosity a little bit. Which is what they do. And then when Alice comes over and she's like, oh, I guess I can stay for one story. They share this look. And it's kind of like, it's a creepy look. They just kind of like, they go, mm, And then, like, it drops immediately. And you're kind of, mm-hmm. you kind of get this. And, like, me watching it now, like, of course I know what happens next. But, like the indication I got was like, oh, they're about to do something bad. Like something bad's going to happen. Like she should not be talking to them, but then they just tell a story and she can get away super easily. So there's like no consequence for it whatsoever. And you're like, okay, that's weird. And I could see it as them just being kids who just want attention and that whole read. Right. But I just, I don't know. It seemed like I don't know. It was it's just something that stood out to me. And I was kind of like, hmm, interesting. I mean, not at all how I not at all how I read that. I just I read them like I got more of a like neurodivergent can't read social cues vibe out of them. And oh. we're just like and we're just like um, like she's like, I'll stay for one story. And they look at each other and we're like, oh, we got the story. We got the we got the best story. Like we got the best story to tell her. Let's tell the the, the Wallace and the Carpenter one, mm. uh, and that that's the vibe I got. I didn't, I don't know, just the, the way they bounce and like the fact that they make the the little squeaks when they bounce up and down. It makes me hard to read any malicious intent on them. Right. Not, not to say that like your perception of them is invalid because like I I I I'm thinking about it now. I'm like yeah okay, if you, yeah just like trying to force a young girl to stay put in a in a strange place like yeah i get it that's that's it's it's creepy and not great um it's more so just the look that they gave each other like it didn't yeah. it wasn't playful to me it wasn't excitement to me it was like it's kind of like what like with that and again it, i might just be i don't know but like with what I, like with how that build up was to the story i almost felt like we would like come out of like the story and then like and they would have eaten her yeah like, right like they'd end up being warless in the carpenter or something like that and it's like oh <laughs> that's that is definitely a way to take it um 
You don't and have I, to. I, I, I can kind you don't of vibe have to on agree. It. It's just no, just I mean, like, being I, like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I kind of get where you're coming from, and I'm currently scrubbing through Disney Plus to see if I can find the the look they give. No, I, I think I kind of see the look you're you're talking about, like, but um, oh, yep, no, I, I see it. <laughs> I see it. Yup. All right. I I absolutely buy your your read of it with um this fucking look on their face. Right? Right? You yeah, see I, that and you're like, what are you going to do th- to this child? <laughs> but there's another look later on where they like legitimately do look excited that she wants to listen to their stories. So like right, this and, is extremely concerning. Right. But that's but, why I'm saying is like yeah. we get this and then like that drops immediately and then we get, and then i get the vibe that they're excited and they're just like being storytellers and they're like you know just wanting to tell the story right but like when you see this it's horrifying it's horrifying and you do not think that there's something good is going to happen in the next three minutes yeah <laughs> that was a great screen grab though like that's my, an, yeah that that's yeah, and they give each other a little, like, you know, they're holding the hats, but it's kind of like but, they're giving like, each other a thumbs up. Yeah, and it's, it's like, not great. It's we- It's bad. It's weird. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll give you that one. All right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Well, that's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And hey, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars only, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. And you can find me at play underscore champion. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests who took the time to talk to us. You can find Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can follow her poetry account at Tasman May Poetry on Instagram. And you can find Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Michelle. Thank you all so much for listening. Join us next time for our discussion on Peter Pan. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.